Also, each week this year, a member of our congregation shares with us a story of God's faithfulness, and we're calling this the year of 52 stories. This week, Gina Radetsky will be sharing. Would you please join me in giving Gina a warm welcome as she comes up? Good morning, everybody. So most of you haven't known me all that long, but if I could sum up the old Gina with just two words, they would be selfish and cold-hearted, which I know maybe sounds a little bit blunt, but it's the truth. Um, I can't exactly pinpoint when I became a cold-hearted person, um, but I certainly never associated it with a lack of God because I grew up in a very religious family. We went to church every Sunday, and I attended religious school and all that good stuff. Um, but what I didn't realize at that point in my life is that religion and faith are not the same thing. So, I mean, like a lot of people, I faced a lot of trials in life. Um, I developed a serious health issue when I was 10 and still battle with it today. And our marriage had a lot of battles early on with religion differences and addictions. And unfortunately, rather than seeing how God was faithful through all of that, I let it turn me into a more bitter person. Therefore, making the problem worse. Um, but thankfully, of course, God had a plan. And in the summer of 2020, I finally got fed up with fighting about religion. I said, you know what, Mike? Let's try a completely different church, which just so happened to be the mill. Um, and what I realized from the very first time that we attended, which was in the park at that point in time, is I saw the difference in people. I saw people who were here because they wanted to be and not because they were obligated to be here. And I started to get to know people outside of church, and I realized, wow, these people are living truly Christian lives, and they actually have a connection with God, which I had never seen before in my 30 years of life. And so I was like, wow, I really, I really want that. And to be honest, it was almost to the point of being jealous of some people that I was getting to know, and I'm like, how can you know God so well? I don't, I don't hardly know him, and I want that. Um, but thankfully... God, again, had a plan for that, and later that summer, it was actually one evening I was out doing barn chores with the family, and God stopped me in my tracks and said a few simple words to me. He just simply said, Gina, you're my child, and I love you, and that was the first time in my entire life I've ever felt God, and from that moment on, it's like he gave me an entirely new heart where I could actually love, and this is going to sound bad to say, but before that, I didn't love myself, I didn't truly love my spouse, and I didn't truly love my kids. Because unless you have the love of God in your heart, you can't truly love anybody else in your life. And so now, I mean, I still, I still have bad days. I am still not a perfect human being, but I actually have a level of joy and peace in my heart that I've never had before. And so I'm just hoping that my simple little story here can maybe serve as a word of encouragement to any, anybody who's just playing along the creek bank and afraid to just jump in feet first. You know what? Don't be afraid to hand over the reins. You will not regret that you did it. So my name is Gina. This is the year of 52 stories. And Jesus is the hero of mine. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the mill. Thank you, Gina, for being willing and having the courage to share your story, 
Shannon and I have so enjoyed uh, getting to know you and your husband, Mike, and your kids over the last uh, year to two years. And so it is with many of you, it's just so awesome to see God working in your life, in your career, in your family. It just blesses us to see uh, what God does in this room and how that impacts uh, you, uh, you know, I think of Mel Gibson starring as William Wallace in Braveheart, which has to be one of my all-time favorite films, when he said, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. And I don't want to, not that we really dress up at the Mel Church, but I don't want to come to church just for nothing. You know, what's the point? What's the point of coming to church? If we're not opening up our hearts to a God who created us and and changes us, that's that's what it's all about, right? So I would encourage you, don't be about rote exercises. Don't be about uh, predictable traditions, although I think many of them are valuable. Don't make it about the traditions themselves, but what they bring to mind, which is a faithful God who even when we are faithless, uh, he is one who can be counted on and uh, depended on. And so that's what I've learned about the Lord, and, and I hope you have too. If you are visiting this morning, please fill out a welcome card. You can do that easily by going to the Mill Church uh, slash, excuse me, the mill.church slash welcome, the mill.church slash welcome. You can do that on your smartphone at any point during the service, and you can also do that by filling out a hard copy at the high top table uh, when you leave at the back. So we're glad you're here today. If you have your Bibles, you can open to the book of Colossians chapter 2. It's uh, probably a little more than two-thirds of the way through your Bible, Colossians chapter 2, maybe closer to three-fourths, and we're spending a few months working through this letter together that was written by a man named Paul. Paul's writing. He's trying to encourage a local church plant, which we are, which our Edgar campus is, which our Arpen brothers and sisters are. They're a newly planted church. So this is very relevant to us. Paul is locked in prison for preaching the gospel, for advancing the mission of Jesus. He's yet thinking about others. He's not thinking about himself. He's not viewing himself as pitiable. He is uh, most other-centered, caring about others, corresponding with them, loving them, wanting to ensure that they don't veer off course. This is the ancient equivalage. Uh, equivalage. <laughs> I was at the spelling bee yesterday all day, so if I say some words that are unfamiliar to you, that would be why. The equivalent, excuse me, of um, sending an instant message to a friend to tell them that you care about them. Well, they didn't have Facebook or Twitter back in the day, so they sent letters. And this is what he sent to people that he cares about. I'll begin reading in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, and this is what the Apostle Paul wrote, which is in your Bible. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is largely where we're going to spend our time this morning, so I want to read these couple verses again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. The reason uh, that the Apostle Paul writes this section of his letter to the church and to our church, uh, by extension, is because for some of us, a relationship with the Lord Jesus, or as he put it, receiving Christ Jesus the Lord, um, feels like a relaxing paddle down a quiet stream in that you're reading your Bible every morning and you're singing a few songs perhaps throughout the day and you're praying and then uh, the next thing you know you're in a stronger current of life and things start getting a bit squirrely and suddenly it feels like everything's out of control and you're in danger, and you're wondering how you got to where you are. My mom and dad are here from North Carolina. They were here to see Levi compete in the state spelling bee yesterday. He made it through four rounds. He got out in the fourth round, um, but he was just so pumped to be there. We were pumped to be there. It was like we felt like we were there for the football state championship. You know what I'm saying? Our faces were painted. We had his head on placards that we wrote. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't get that excited, but it was cool. It was a great event. And uh, we were there, and uh, my mom and dad came up from North Carolina. They'll be worshiping with us in the second service. I remember a time when I was in college in eastern Tennessee, and my mom and dad came up there too one weekend to spend time with me and go whitewater rafting with a few of my friends. They even brought up a couple buddies from home where I grew up about six hours away to the Okoe River in eastern Tennessee. Anybody ever visited the Okoe River? Wow, okay, two, two of you. All right, um, Britt and Delena. So the Okoe River is the former site of the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. It's not far from Atlanta. It's where they had all the whitewater competitions. You may remember that uh, Olympics being the Olympics that were bombed by someone, and it set off this whole, you know, should we have the Olympics or shouldn't we, and how can we protect everyone? And Well, anyway, the Okoi River is where the Olympic competition was held. And so when there's been a lot of rain or when the valve, the big valve is turned on or whatever, it can have some class four rapids, not class five rapids like we see in the Northwest, um, but class four rapids. I remember we were moving along quite peaceably and everything was cool in this whitewater raft when we looked up and saw the calm blue water start to turn a noisy white. And, of course, the volume gets louder and louder. And I remember not too far into that stretch, after going over a few bumps, looking back and noticing that my dad was no longer on the raft and wondering where my dad went. 
and kind of canvassing the river and seeing his head pop up with a big gasp out of the, the white water and he's flailing about and trying to get back to the raft. And I remember my dad, um, who's a good-sized guy, reaching up to, for a paddle, you know, that the, the uh, guide was extending in his direction and pulled him in. And I remember my dad reaching up and trying to grab on to the webbing around the raft and instead grabbing on to the webbing on my friend Emily's life jacket and trying to pull himself up and instead of pulling himself up into the raft pulling her off overboard and into the white water and so we were down two not down one my dad and Emily in the water and it was quite a squall and it was an experience rounding them all up. So Paul is warning the church that there will be strong currents that will pull you out of God's will and off God's course and into danger. And if only you'll reach up and pull your friends into the danger with you. No, I'm just kidding. That's not where he was going with that. Um, if Paul's point is to avoid the danger, right? All Together. So if you're on social media, it can be difficult right now being a Christian because the whole goal of social media is that people like you and you get these dopamine hits, right? Because you get so many likes or whatever, and so you think more highly of yourself and you become addicted and you look at advertisements that make others a lot of money and you learn to like to be liked by people. And it's hard to be a faithful Christian, frankly, when you like to be liked. Because not everyone likes what Christians believe. And the cultural backlash can sometimes be strong. Why? Well, because the current is going the opposite direction as that of the culture. So then what do you do? Well, it's tempting to focus on causes instead of Christ because a cause, and they can be wonderful in and of themselves, but a cause like the Hanta Center where I, the Hanna Center, excuse me, where I serve on the board, or like the Ukrainian people for whom I'm a big advocate, or like a particular political party. Well, gosh, this feels Christian. This feels Christ-like. So I'm going to be a vocal advocate for my cause on social media instead of being a vocal advocate for Christ. And eventually what happens is people can confuse Christ for a cause and they can even champion their cause instead of Christ. And there are strong currents that want to and will pull us away from the flow of God's grace and pull us away from the flow or the truth of God's word. And they can even be great and good uh, things. So Paul is trying to tell the church at Colossae, come back to Jesus Come back to Jesus. Stay in the flow of God's truth. Don't confuse it with someone else's cause. Causes can be wonderful, but when a good thing 
becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Will you turn to your neighbor and say this morning, when a good thing, go ahead, becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Even a part of being a part of the Mill Church, which Gina said was an important part of God grabbing hold of her, even becoming part of the Mill Church, can, which, which we, I like to think as the pastor here, that it's a good thing. Even if that becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing. In other words, when your Sunday morning attendance becomes in your mind your golden ticket for heaven, that's a bad thing. That's not a good thing. When something becomes a God thing that should stay a good thing, that's a bad thing. Clayton King, the Baptist evangelist that I tuned into when I was a kid, said, going to a hen house doesn't make you a chicken. Going to a parking garage doesn't make you a car. Going to Pizza Hut doesn't make you a large pepperoni with extra cheese and stuffed crust. Okay? So going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And if you think your association with a cause or with faithful Christians is your ticket through the pearly gates, allow me to remind you this morning that God only has children. He does not have any grandchildren. Meaning you cannot ride simply on the coattails of someone else's faith. You have to make a decision to pursue and follow Christ for yourself. This includes, of course, your spouse. You can become one with them in marriage. It does not mean that you're one with them in the faith. You can be a son or daughter. You can be a teenager here whose parents have chosen to follow wholeheartedly Jesus Christ. And if you don't make a decision for yourself to follow Jesus, you will not be with them in heaven. It's your decision. And so don't let a good thing become a bad thing in that it distracts you from the God thing who is Jesus. Paul is reminding this new church, remember Jesus. He says it's about receiving Jesus. So my question to you is, have you received Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Or are you simply here with your neighbor? Because you must choose to confess your sins. You must choose to follow Christ over the world. You must choose to swim against the culture. So Paul says, it starts with the Lord. He's in charge. He's the authority. So walk in Him, he says. Be rooted and built up in Him, he says. Be established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, in Him. And notice Paul says, in, if you'll remember, chapter 1, verse 7, just as you, or excuse me, that's actually chapter 2, verse 7. Forgive me, Leslie. Just as you were taught. What is Paul saying? What is Paul saying? He's saying, guys, your founding pastor, Epaphras, and actually 
it was 170. He mentioned Epaphras. <laughs> I think I confused myself. Did I mention I went to the spelling bee yesterday and there's lots of words that were very unfamiliar to me? I was a bit confused. So Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 7, he mentions by name. He's saying in chapter 2 now, around verse 7, he's saying, don't forget about that guy. He's taught you faith just as you have been taught. He did a good job, in other words. He's telling you the truth. Don't forget that. You don't need to unlearn a bunch of things. Just just remember what Epaphras has told you. Paul seems very, very aware that, one, people are the product of the instruction they've received in life, the instruction that they choose to submit themselves to. Two, there is a difference between good instruction and bad instruction. That is very true. Three, that the church of Colossae had received good instruction, thankfully, and not bad instruction. So you need to be very careful, Paul is saying, that you choose good instruction over bad instruction. Some of you were well taught as new Christians and you have learned, you have such a good framework. Some of you got a bit of good and bad when you were growing up um, and you need a little course correction perhaps to stay in a current with a healthy speed. And frankly, some of you perhaps, I don't know this to be true, but maybe you have drank from a few polluted Wells, there are polluted wells out there, particularly within the last couple years. A bunch of polluted wells have presented themselves, and maybe you have not lately received good instruction. Paul's saying people are the product of the instruction that they choose to receive. Have you seen the new Dateline production? Heaven's Gate. It's a documentary about a cult where a bunch of people believed somebody who was wacko. We're talking about white-collar professionals who otherwise live very tidy lives, top-notched careers, who gave in to folly, to bad teaching, So Paul says you need to be careful that you receive Jesus. And secondly, you need to find good teaching about Jesus. And and what Paul does next is he's going to say you need to grow. You need to mature. You need to learn in the faith. And he's going to layer a bunch of imagery to help us understand how to grow stronger in our faith. In verse 6, Paul uses the language of a walk. And Paul says, you need to be walking with Jesus. That communicates, I would hope, to you if you have ever walked with somebody like your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your child, hand in hand. I think a walk communicates, generally, relationship. Right? You see people walking together. What do you think of those people? They must be related Or they must be friends, right? If you see a person walking a dog, do you conclude, like right off the bat, they must hate their dog? They must just despise, no, what do you think? That's their buddy. They care for their dog. They have a relationship, right? So 
So Paul is saying, how is your walk with Jesus? How is your relationship with Jesus? How is your time spent with Jesus? What journeys are you going on with Jesus? What adventures are you taking with Jesus? Uh, Who talks with you in this life? Is it Jesus? Who listens to you in this life? Is it Jesus? Who cares about you in this life? So allow me to ask you the same question. How is your walk with Jesus? How is your time spent with Jesus? You say, Pastor, I don't always know how it is. I don't even know the next step that I ought to take in my walk with Jesus. Well, I'll tell you, the Holy Spirit will tell you. He will prompt you. Uh, Do you need to purchase your very first Bible? Maybe that's you. Do you need to read the Bible that you've already purchased and have? Maybe that's you. Do you need to find a Bible that you can understand instead of the Bible that was given to you by your great-grandmother that was in the King James, which was the vernacular, right, 1,500 years ago, but no longer, maybe you need to find something that you can understand. Maybe that's how you need to grow. Maybe you need to start praying through verses that you're already reading. Maybe you need to deepen some relationships with Christian friends. Maybe you need to get outside of yourself and serve. Do you need to get rid of something in your life? Change something in your life. I don't know, talking to a few dozen people, what the next step is for each of you to grow, but I will tell you that the Holy Spirit will prompt you, will show you if you're open to listening. Paul says this is really like a walk. And to be clear, that's not an excuse for delaying. It's not saying this isn't a run, therefore I can be lazy with this or indifferent toward my relationship with Jesus. Paul says no. In in saying this is a walk, he's saying this is a series of steps, right, that need to be taken. Don't sit there and think to yourself. I, I call these pitchfork Christians. Oh, yeah, I know what step my husband needs to take right now in your mind. I know, oh, if only my mother-in-law would take this step, right? And we're constantly pitchforking great instruction that would otherwise be of value to us and heaping it on to somebody who we think needs it more. Rather, what is the step that you need to take in your walk with Christ today? Paul also in verse 7 He utilizes this language of being rooted. How many of you are gardeners? Any gardeners? Two. All right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, gardeners. How many of you get tired of me asking you to raise your hand? Okay. All right, more than we're gardeners. Okay. Um, So we live in an area with relatively fertile soil, right? This is great farming country. Um, great soil here. You know, I, yesterday, root systems here grow with ease. Yesterday, we were down around the Madison area, north of Madison on I-39, you can see from the interstate, lots of trees whose tops are completely missing. 
And without being uh, someone who really studies these types of things, I would imagine it's because their roots are sitting in standing what? Water. It's really a low-lying area, swamp country, big buck country down in Portage County. And from the interstate, you can see. You can see that trees' roots are constantly exposed to water. And so the tops, some of them have even blown off or they've blown down altogether, exposing their root systems above the, the earth. And so what happens is that you need to have deep roots. Where are your roots? Are you grounded in amicable soil? Without strong, deep roots, things blow over. And Paul is saying that what happens physically, it also happens to us spiritually. You must have roots in the scripture. You have to have roots in prayer. Psalm 1 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's about roots. It has rooted me over the years. And it says something like this. And I memorized it when I was young. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful who just mocks everything all the time. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of, not in rivers of water, like the trees in Madison, but by rivers of water, who brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Shall prosper. That chapter has saved me again and again and again. I can remember being in college and a bunch of buddies in a fraternity that I was in wanting to go to spring break to, I believe, Destin. How many of you know not a lot of good things happen in Florida on spring break? Not a lot, yeah, more people are raising your hands for that, right? Oh, yeah, I know that. Oh, yeah. Okay? Not a lot of good happens down there on spring break. Okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, it's on my heart, it's seared into my conscience. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Who doesn't stand in the same path that sinners stand in. Who doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. And on that one occasion, not that I've chosen this path every time, but I chose to go home to mom and dad. How many of you know that not a lot of really bad things happen in your mother's living room? Okay? Typically. Not a lot. I just, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Funny. I said typically, <laughs> generally. So um, generally, right, it's a safer place to be. And all the way home, I'm singing of the goodness of God. Just thanking the Lord. Because I knew my buddies were going to make mistakes that they'd regret. And again, not that I haven't made mistakes at other times, but I just knew it wasn't the right course of action for me at the time. 
And I was so giddy. And the music was blaring so loud that I sped too much and got a speeding ticket on the way home from school that year. But nonetheless, I was glad that I at least followed the Lord um, apart from the speed at which my vehicle is traveling. So um, wherever you are, find a good stream where you can grow roots. That's Paul's language. And then I'll conclude with this. He uses a language built up. That's a good one for our context. Build up. How many of you are creators? You build things. You build uh, software. You develop something. Technology. You are a tradesman. You do handiwork of some kind. You're a carpenter. You're an entrepreneur. You're building a company. You're building a product, right? So Paul says, this is what life in God is like. It's like building something. Life with God is something you build every day. You're you're coding something. You're hammering a board. You're welding a bead. You're laying a brick. You're learning. You're discovering. You're tweaking. You're waking up and you're thinking to yourself, boy, what can I add today to my already building faith? What, how can I build on my understanding of God? This is a construction analogy that Paul uses. Whose burden can I carry today? Right? Whose load can I haul today? What is, is Paul saying? He's saying that for each of us, when it comes to God and his word... There are certain things that we need to establish. We need to build. Well, what do I think about the Bible? Well, gosh, that's foundational. I'd better build something. I'd better build a thought system about the Bible. Do I think it's true or do I think it's hogwash? It's important to establish that, right? Before you can build any higher. Um, what do I think about God? Does he really love me? That's, that's kind of a linchpin. That's kind of a cornerstone in the building project. Everything else is affected by that belief. Do I believe that Jesus was who he said he was or don't I? Gosh, I need to establish that. I need to be decisive in that area. Otherwise, I can't really build anymore am i forgiven of my sins because jesus died brutally on the cross or aren't i i can't really build any higher until i know the answer to that i can't i can't have a shame-free guilt-free conscience until i'm born again and believe that it worked believe that i'm actually forgiven Changed. Paul says in verse 7, and I'll wrap up with this. You need to practice an attitude of gratitude. Now, I'm paraphrasing. This is what he said directly. Just as you were taught, abounding in what? Thanksgiving. 
Would you agree that there's a difference between dabbling in thanksgiving and abounding in thanksgiving? I will confess to you, I'm a thanksgiving dabbler. I dabble in thanksgiving. I've shared with you before, I'm in Enneagram 1. That means I'm a perfectionist. It means I always have a little critic inside my head telling me what's wrong with any given situation. And I hear that critic speaking to me, and I have a hard time pointing out things that are right about any situation. I see things that are wrong about any situation, and I want to fix them. And so I'm slow to compliment. And I'm also slow to be thankful because I'm thinking about what we need to fix to move this thing forward, not reflecting on what we've already fixed in the past and letting gratitude be produced in my heart. So I struggle with this. If something's not right, it's wrong. And I'm going to point it out. And, and I'm the one who sees not what, what's already been done, but what needs to be done. And, and I live in the windshield, not in the rear view. How many of you would say my to-do list looks like the scroll of Isaiah? It just keeps going. Okay? You're probably a lot like me in this way. But so important to pause and say thank you. To pause and say to those like Mike and Mary who have been our neighbors for six years and who have enriched our lives, thank you. Thank you to save the Lord who has, you know, the Israelites just used to do this with piles of stones. And they would put stone on top of stone on top of stone on top of stone. And they would want their kids when they revisited this part of the nation to see that stack of stones and remember, recall the moment of putting those those boulders on top of each other, and that they called that an Ebenezer stone, and they would say, do you remember what God did for us here? This is on the border of the nation of Egypt. Do you remember God leading us out of the nation of Egypt? This is by the rock that Moses struck. Do you remember God providing us water? When is the last time that you've just intentionally decided to live in the rear view? To pause and to thank the Lord, not for where you're going, but for what he's brought you through. So the way I want to conclude today's service is for us to just spend some time and thank God for the prayers that he has already answered in our lives. And to just spend a few minutes in appreciation and adoration of him. So I'm going to invite you, because I think it keeps us swimming in a safe current. Think about it. If you're ungrateful and bitter about your life, aren't you more than willing to swim away from your current experience to try to find something that will be a little more enticing? An adventure that you not that you ought not to be on. 
a path you ought not to be on. Where, where when you're sitting with an attitude of gratitude, you're thinking, man, I'm contented in the ways and work of Jesus. Look at what he's done. So let's just bow our heads this morning. Will you do that? And just spend a few moments. Normally I'd lead you in prayer, but I'm just going to be quiet today and just ask you to reflect on what God has brought you through. And now I'm just going to give you some prompts. Just begin to thank the Lord for what's great about your children, your kids, if you have kids. Just begin to thank Him for what's great about them. Now just thank the Lord for whatever is great about your spouse, maybe your fiancé. Now thank the Lord for whatever is great about your neighbor or neighbors.
It's going to be a hard one for some of you. Thank the Lord for whatever is great about your boss and your coworkers. Whatever is great about them. And now thank the Lord for whatever is great about himself. Thank him directly. Now find something great to thank the Lord for about our country. All right, last one. I'm going to really challenge you. Think of something to thank God for about this morning's weather. All right, now everybody look up at me. How many of you thank God for the sunshine this morning? Did anybody here thank God for no mosquitoes or deer flies? All right. Isn't it amazing what happens when we cultivate? <laughs> when we cultivate gratitude, 
Do we or don't we have more to be thankful for than we express? We absolutely do. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the amazing people, simply, Lord, who are in this room. Lord, people who we could probably all say there's somebody in this room who has enriched my life. Life would not be as flavorful. Life would not be as salient. Life would not be as enjoyable without their presence. Lord, we thank you for those people. We thank you for one another. We thank you, Lord, for salvation, for dying on the cross for our sins, for caring about us, for knowing us intimately, for preparing a home in heaven for us. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, to give you glory for, to honor you for, to adore you for. Lord, you are a treasure. We bless you this morning. We praise you. We lift you high. Lord, we bow down low. Lord, we owe you gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.